This is a Lip Media Podcast. Content discussed on this podcast may be triggering for some individuals. So if you feel like today you can't quite handle it, that's totally fine. You can press pause and come back another day. Remember, we're always going to be here. And if you need immediate help, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Hey everybody, welcome to If You Don't Mind. It's your host, Madeline. I am here, as usual, bringing you a inspirational story about someone's mental health journey. Uh, guys, uh, I'm, I'm sad to say, but this is the last episode of the season. Yes, I've decided to call it with this one. I am a little bit exhausted, to be perfectly honest, and a little bit burnt out. So I thought, you know what, I should take my own advice that I've preach all the time here and look after myself. So yes, this is the final episode of season two, but um, good news is it's a really, really good one. A really, really, really good one. So I got to speak to fellow podcaster uh, Ruby, who is host of Triple Bypass, a show that focuses on bisexuality. Um, and Ruby was super open and honest about their experiences with anxiety and depression, as well as receiving quite later in life uh, a diagnosis of uh, ADHD and autism spectrum disorder. Uh, so it was absolutely fantastic to hear how all of that intersects uh, in Ruby's life and and what it's like for them to have had these, you know, revelations later in life. And yeah, I think it was just a fantastic opportunity for uh, not only myself, but we're a fantastic opportunity for listeners out there to kind of understand how uh, being neurodiverse and also having a mental illness, uh, how they relate to each other. Um, so just a trigger warning, everybody, this this episode obviously does uh, touch on anxiety, depression, um uh, stigma and discrimination faced by people living with ADHD, autism spectrum disorder, people who are, are non-binary or members of the LGBTQI plus community. So that's something you're not ready to listen to today. Please uh, switch off and come back when you're ready. So this is Ruby. It's the last episode of season two. I hope you love it. <music> Hey, Ruby, welcome to If You Don't Mind. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Oh, I really I really appreciate um, you being actually the last guest of the year. Um, so it's a very big honor. <laughs> <laughs> I feel it. I feel yeah, the honor. There's a lot of pressure. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> Ruby, would you be able to introduce yourself to my listeners just so they can get a little bit of a, a breakdown as to who you are and what you're about? Sure. Um, hi, everybody. My name is Ruby Susan Mountford. Uh, my pronouns are they, them. I am a non-binary, bisexual, uh, autistic person who lives in Nam, aka Melbourne. Uh, and I work in community development, particularly with LGBTIQ disability and with the bisexual plus community. And so that I work in research and consultation, uh, and in project management and in, um, volunteer spaces. So I am the vice president of Melbourne Bisexual Network, and I also run the BiPlus Community of Melbourne Facebook group with a bunch of incredible volunteer mods and everything. And I also work uh, on disability inclusion with LGBTIQ organizations, and I work on LGBTIQ plus inclusion in disability and health organizations. That's the most concise, um, amazing introduction I've ever received. Oh, well, um, you're very, you. you're a very busy person. <laughs> oh yeah, because that's the other thing. The reason is because I also do a podcast yeah. called Triple Bypass on Joy ninety four point nine about the bisexual plus community that's been going on for about four years. So I, I got quite good at doing little spiels. <laughs> I love that. When do you, so? What kind of made you decide to start that particular show? 
Um, I kind of fell into it, actually. I'd started to volunteer with Joy, which is the LGBTIQ community radio station. Mm-hmm. It's based in Melbourne. It's one of only three 24-hour, um, like 24-7 LGBTIQ broadcasters in the world. And um, I started off there on the just helping out on the front desk and then I got into news reading. And then from news reading, I ended up doing a current affairs program. And then I was – I joined in part because – I was frustrated that there wasn't a, it was still at that point, the gay and lesbian radio station. And they were saying they were looking for more bisexual plus people, uh, bisexual plus meaning multi-gender attraction. So bi, pansexual, polysexual, people who are queer, uh, and ident- anyone who's attracted to more than one gender. Yes, um, yes. And I think then I was basically approached and said, well, look, we're trying to put together a bi plus show. Would you like to be part of it? And I was really eager to join and uh, yeah, that was four years, uh, four and a bit years ago. Now we had our fourth birthday on in August mm-hmm. this year. And are you we were, we've all been recording from home for a while. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and are you still loving it to this day? Like, is it something yes. that you still get a lot of joy from? Oh yeah, it's uh it's been and honestly, like the the impact that like that's had in just my own sense of self, my identity, and like my understanding of myself, but also. As an autistic person, I can find conversations and small talk a little awkward. So it's always really cool when I meet an interesting person to be like, ah, come into this room with me and let's talk for an hour. (laughs) For a very structured interview. (laughs) Very structured interview. Um, And we can get to know each other. And then I'll maybe like, let's be friends. But it's, uh, yeah, it's... um, it's been it's been incredible. I've been really uh, I feel very fortunate to have had the opportunity and for it to continue to go on because of all the wonderful support from members and everything and from the team people who I work with and stuff. And uh, it's kind of where I really got started in LGBTIQ um, advocacy because I was doing the current affairs program during the postal survey in in the year leading up to it. And so um, it was really where I got a chance to feel, to connect to community, to really get across what was happening and to kind of see the individuals involved and to understand the mechanisms of what was honestly such a huge grassroots effort to for the Yes campaign and everything and mm. to really appreciate just how much work was going into it and um, and just to feel like I was in some way a part of that was incredible and I think it that feeling is what I've chased for a while and now um and yeah the the bi show we've been there aren't a lot of bisexual focused podcasts in the world and so it's really lovely to be able to bring uh you know one that has a very distinct Australian accent to it (laughs) and do you have a lot of people kind of reach out to you and say like this is just so important this has helped me kind of come to some conclusions about myself and and love myself more yeah, no, we have, I think. Um, and we we get people emailing us from around the world about it. And we don't maybe and we haven't heard from as many people in the last year, but we're still one of the not to brag, <laughs> but um we're one of the top downloaded shows across Joy and Joy produces a huge amount of LGBTIQ content for podcasts. Yeah. And so knowing that you know, we're the only show that's specifically for bi-plus people. And it's, I think, in September, which is Bi-Visibility Month mm. and, you know, contains Bi-Visibility Day, we just kind of slowly expanded it to kind of encompass all of September. We um we were the third most downloaded show on the station. So I think there's definitely that sense of feeling like it's we're not just uh, yelling into the void. Yeah. <laughs> um, but even to be honest, even if we were, I still it's it's helped. It gives me a lot of sense of purpose and drive. So I would probably still keep doing it, even if it was really only occasionally my uncle listening. <laughs> <laughs> I know when I first started the podcast, I was like, I'm pretty sure it's just my family, um, but that's fine. And it's fine. Yeah, it's fine. And you're right. Like I think uh, it sounds so lame and cliche, but like if you're what you put out there, the content you put out there is helping a handful of people. Um, that's that's enough you know yeah it's, it's an incredible privilege i think to to recognize that you are helping anybody mm-hmm. i think uh, to recognize that something that you're making is having an impact on people's lives and how they view themselves or how they view the world like that's it's a, it's incredible it's a really extraordinary privilege i think and uh yeah i i, I can see what people get into it i can see why you know we've started to have those jokes around like everyone has a podcast <laughs> 
which is kind of true. Um, I yeah, I personally think. I mean, I'm very, I'm very positive there not being you know many more just two white guys talking about comedy uh, podcasts. I feel like mm. there, there are a little bit too many of those. Um, <laughs> so I think anything that's kind of a little bit different and diverse and is trying to kind of get across a particular story or a particular group of people kind of into the mainstream, um, you know contemporary yeah. society i think is just yeah. so amazing and it's so it's so incredibly you're you're right it's so it's so humbling to know that you're having that impact i think it's pretty cool and i think as well like we really we really want to know that we're not alone in our experiences mm. to know that especially when you're from any group that or in, like or experience anything that does come with stigma or marginalization like it can make such a huge difference to listen to people who are talking about things that affect you or have affected you just because you can have language put to your experience and know that that's shared and that other people have survived it or other people have struggled with it or both you know I think um and and in terms of like uh whether it's about passion like find people who are as passionate about particular things as you are or whether it's about like identity and finding people who have similar life experiences in their gender identity or their intersex status or their sexuality i think it it really just kind of makes you feel safer about owning that part of yourself because yes. you know that you're not going to be out there alone and it can really it, before the internet especially it could really feel like that um, so I think, yeah, I think there's a, there's something very special and powerful about that. I think. I agree. I think anything that can kind of really help people find a sense of community and inclusion and yeah, you're right. Like make, make them feel like they're not completely alone in what they're experiencing or, you know, going through. I think that's one of the most powerful things about podcasting is you can literally send this out to millions and millions of people um, and someone will benefit from it. And I just think that's so incredibly cool. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, love the internet. It's not always great, but other times it's fantastic. (laughs) Um, So I'd love to kind of get started. I have a few questions for you. Um, There's lots of things I want to touch on, but uh, I'm a very big talker, so I want to make sure I don't uh, go over time. Uh, so I'd love to start <laughs> off potentially with just like finding out, I guess, uh, the, the beginning of your mental health journey in terms of what it looked like when you were younger, um, how you kind of came to those conclusions when you started to seek help, how it all started. Um, I'd love to, to know that story if you're happy to share it. Sure. Um, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I think because looking back, there's times where I wasn't really aware that mental health was something I should be taking quite seriously until uh, probably I was 19 but and I was diagnosed with uh, depression mm-hmm. but before that I I when I growing up at school I had a lot of issues with bullying and connection uh, I wasn't diagnosed as an autistic person until I was 25 so I oh, yeah so I was experiencing just a lot of issues with other with other people and so I got quite uh I got quite depressed through that and quite um and, and quite suicidal. And so I made a, and then I think I was also really wanting someone to notice that I wasn't going okay and give me some solutions as to what I could be doing to make it better or just to help me. Yeah. And so when I was 16, I, I made, um, I made a kind of, I would definitely a cry for help. Uh, so I wouldn't call, like, I did not intend to die, but I want people to know that I was feeling like I maybe should sometimes. Yeah. And, uh, the response I got from that was actually a lot of anger. Um, because I think people hadn't understood, my parents particularly hadn't really understood just how sad and hard I was finding things. And so that kind of meant that I went to see a psychologist, but I also was very determined to show that I was okay because I didn't want people to be angry with me anymore. And I think, uh, so it wasn't really until, but then when I was finishing high school, my brother, um, became quite, uh, mentally unwell. He's, um, he's also a queer person. He also got bullied a lot at school and he also made some, um, attempts on his life. Yeah. And so we started to go see, to see a lot of family, uh, fam, like we had family therapy sessions basically to try and understand what was happening and to help us all through that. And I think, uh, but it wasn't until a few years after that where I had my own kind of mental breakdown, which looking back was actually what we call autistic burnout, which when the cost of trying to 
fit in and keep up these expectations that always just feel like you're constantly disappointing people. It just gets to the point where it just feels like it's not worth it anymore. Yes. And that was when I was diagnosed with depression. Um, so again, people didn't, uh, I, depression was like a, so I started taking antidepressants at the time and it definitely, it helped. At first I was quite upset and like I had to go through particular liaison offices for, um, and it was all very much linked to, oh, I'd grown up in this very tumultuous environment. Like my brother had been really, really unwell and that's what was causing it. Yeah. And then it wasn't actually until, um, and so I stayed on antidepressants, uh, for, for, for quite a few years. And, uh, and then I, was good to see a GP about that. And he was noticing, oh, you've been on antidepressants for a while. You still seem to be feeling pretty sad a lot. Uh, and I've been seeing a psychologist for a while at that point as well. And, uh, and then he actually suggested that I might have ADHD. And so, and that it was quite common in his experience to meet, um, people who are assigned female at birth, um, for them to not be for us to not be picked up because a lot of the diagnostics around ADHD are based on the behavior of white boys. And so don't take into account inattentive ADHD, which is more like the heavy daydreaming and no diagnostics of ADHD take into account emotional, uh, the way it affects emotional regulation or emotional dysregulation. And so, uh, I, I, I look back on it and it, I just, uh, that GP was only at the clinic I go to for a few months and he only talked to me for about, you know, 20 minutes. And in that time he was like, I think you should, I'm going to give you a referral to go see this person. And I went to that person and I did a quiz, uh, like a survey mm. and, uh, he's like, I'm going to try you on some medication. I think you'll find that you won't need antidepressants because I think you are one of the things that is depressing you is, you know, this kind of constant cycle of just, trying to put structure in your life and having it really fall apart. And, um, Interesting. and so, and then, um, uh, after that, my psychologist I've been seeing for a few years and she also, you know, seen my parents at times and stuff. She just kind of gently suggested at one point, if I'd ever considered that maybe I'm an, I'm autistic, uh, or Asperger's was the term that she used. Um, and I had not, and I found it kind of wild. And I, I, honestly, because I just did not have a very good understanding of autism at the time, I felt really insulted, honestly, and kind of shocked. But then as I was reading more about it, particularly about how the misdiagnosed, and it was a very similar story with ADHD, just how so many women and people who are assigned female at birth and socialized as girls are missed in the diagnostic criterias and are missed by assessments. And so as a result become, you know, tend to develop really low sense of self-worth and self-esteem and have a lot of issues with anxiety and depression and, and quite high levels of suicidal ideation. Really? And I did not know that. Okay. Yeah. Well, because there's that sense of when you don't know, so, you know, when you're a disabled person, but you don't know you're disabled, mm. the only person there is to blame is for things for like finding things harder than everybody else is yourself. Yes. So, you know, I'm not trying and like, and it's, and that's who everyone else blames too. You know, you're not trying hard enough. You just need to get your, like, be more organized, yeah, get your shit stop together, get yeah. your shit together, yeah. stop procrastinating, just get on with it. You know, why is this like, this shouldn't be so hard. You need, like, you're not doing your best work. If you could just focus or, or like, and when you add that with also, having issues with social connection because autism has a big impact on how we socialize. Mm. Um, it really, you know, creates a kind of repeating pattern with a very strong inner critic is how I think of it now. Um, and so, but since I started taking medication for ADHD, I did stop taking antidepressants. I still have like, I still have depressive episodes Yes, and I get very affected by, um, by my menstrual cycle. So the way that, you know, the four uh, weeks of that the, in the final week where, you know, progesterone is really low and you've got really low estrogen and the way that the hormone levels can work, uh, some autistic people, we're more sensitive to hormones. And so I get quite depressed usually in the last week of my cycle. Um, so I've, I've learned to, understand why but before I was diagnosed I just would I'd reach points where it would just feel like oh it's just too life is just too hard mm -hmm. like I I don't understand why my best is never good enough yeah and it's interesting because my best wasn't good enough because I was you know I was uh I was kind of uh, trying to uh, I was trying to run a race with my shoelaces tied together. I was literally about to say exactly the same thing. You're like, you're literally running a completely different race. Yeah. Um, but you're trying to 
you're trying to keep up with everybody else. Yes, exactly. It's just such a, I, I think it's just such an apt way of explaining it, um, especially if you're not aware of it. That mm-hmm. would be so frustrating. Well, yeah, because no one notices that my shoelaces are tied together, but they notice when I fell over. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> um, and they're just saying that I was really clumsy. I am a bit clumsy. Oh, but, yeah. like, I suppose as well, like, you know, as a as a bisexual person, um, like, bisexual plus people in general have very, very high levels of anxiety, higher than than gay and lesbian people and higher than the straight community as well. Um, and that also comes from that sense of not really ever feeling totally comfortable in a space because there's always a potential for rejection because there's a and there hasn't been a lot of visible bisexual and like pansexual communities which is changing now thanks again to the internet you know the best and worst of us is all on the internet but um it definitely was that sense of kind of feeling like there are a lot of parts of me that I was going to have to overcome to be worthy Mm. and I think that mentality um was came about quite young and like a, I remember seeing like a child like before I changed schools uh, at the end of year four because I just was having such a hard time with friends and I went to see a psychologist to try and learn how to make friends <laughs> you know um, and again turns out autism has a bit of an impact on how we make friends with each other but um, but yeah it was it was kind of and as I've gotten older it's recognizing that look, the strong inner critic voice doesn't really go away. The sense of being an imposter doesn't really go away. I've just had, I've just learned a lot of ways to recognize how to meet reality on reality's terms. Yes. And when my, and how as well that my emotions and the strength of them, because again, I can't regulate. So when uh, I feel something, if I don't find ways to kind of dampen it I will feel it extremely strongly and it'll be very overwhelming so just a huge amount of you know chemicals are released and people with ADHD have low dopamine we don't have the same reward responses in our brain gotcha. and so we don't get the same um, reward feedbacks from doing tasks so it can be very hard to start tasks because your brain's constantly searching for something that's actually going to give it a hit like the mm. you know humans in whole we have a bigger we search for potency we want potent experiences you know um and with ADHD that's very much amplified um and so I think like uh, the the numbness that can come when your brain isn't stimulated, it's depressing. It's really depressing. Um, like literally, it's a depressive thing. No, of course, and, yeah. Yeah, and I think that it's interesting because people with ADHD and people um, on the autism spectrum, we do have very high levels of mental health issues, as, as do bisexual people, as do non-binary people. So a lot of those intersections, we tend to have a lot of anxiety, so a lot of critical fear of judgment Mm. um yeah so I think that's been um that's been something that I've been kind of aware of and I think one of those things is recognizing that I'm always probably going to feel it's always going to be a bit hard for me to to feel confident and so I suppose it's been that case of really having to understand that rather than being and like rather than trying to change that base or change the foundation I need to find ways to to live with this and um, and to not kind of constantly be holding up a version of myself to compare myself to that might never act, that doesn't exist. You know, there isn't a version of me that is not like, you know, that doesn't have to handle depressive episodes and doesn't have to live with uh, feelings of self-worth uh, being questioned, especially, you know, in living in a world that doesn't really, that still really make, like, that still really questions why autistic people and queer people exist. Yes, and often, yeah. yeah. I feel like um, a lot of, there's a lot of kind of, uh, I'm trying to think of the best way to explain it, but I think people sometimes think, oh yeah, like everybody is just accepted now and everything's fine. And, uh, we, you know, have our, uh, awareness campaigns and everything is chill now and there's no stigma and no one's discriminated against. And it's just not the case. Um, yeah. And minority stress has a huge impact on health, right? Like, mm. um, and that idea of, I always wonder, and I've, I've had arguments about this with people back when I used to do current affairs, uh, because it was that sense of, if people don't think discrimination exists, do they assume that LGBTIQ plus people, that we have high rates of of mental health issues and high rates of, su- of suicide and, um, and suicide attempts just because 
just why, you know, like why would these, and the same with the, you know, um, with other marginalized communities as well. Like why do we experience these things at higher rates? And it is because it is hard to have self-respect in a world that doesn't give you ways to imagine yourself living a happy life. Yes. You know, when you grow up and you kind of don't really see yourself on people like you being happy and healthy and successful in whatever success means to you, whether it's financial, social, you know, a bit of both, um, uh, romantic success, all of those things. If you don't see people like you experiencing those things, then you assume that you can't experience them unless you can fundamentally change yourself. Mm. And I think um, that's, it just tends to mean that you're constantly, I, I would constantly question myself and, I'd, and I still have issues with it. Like, you know, I, there are still parts of me, particularly my autistic traits, like um, not always knowing when it's right to come into a conversation. Though I think everyone's now experienced that over Zoom, which is kind of cool. Cause I'm like, oh, you know that feeling? I feel that in the real world. <laughs> Hate that feeling so I can. Yeah. And I feel yeah. like as well, like, you know, when you're experiencing microaggression after microaggression or just little bits and pieces of stigma every day, it grounds you down. It grinds you down. And I think it only makes, it makes sense that obviously mental health comes uh, among LGBTQI plus people would be, would be lower and, mm. and not as, you know, we would be experiencing um, higher rate, rates of anxiety and depression because, you know, you're not experiencing, you're not feeling accepted and welcomed as everybody else is. So, I mean, it just, it, yeah, I mean, it's terrible, but it does make sense. Yeah, it, the, logic, the logic is sound, as you might say. And, I mean, there was a study done in Australia about the experience of LGBTIQ people experiencing homelessness, mm. and they did find that bisexual plus people were more likely to be homeless while experiencing bipolar, while experiencing schizophrenia, while experiencing complex wow. PTSD. So, yeah, I think there's, like, a case of... Um, you know, and also like LGBTIQA plus people are more likely than the than the um, the heterosexual, uh, cisgendered, and non intersex population to experience, to live with disability. And mental health is one of the you know is one of the biggest causes of disability in this country. And so I think there's like um I think it's like twenty over twenty two percent of us, uh, which is like something like um when you assume that eleven percent of the population of Australia is LGBTIQ, which is like in my mind it's a pretty conservative pop, yeah. like you know estimate, but it's what we kind of tend to agree on. Yeah. And you take 22% of that population, and it's about, you know, of us. Uh, so I think what it's 22% of, it's something like, so we've got about four and a half million LGBTIQ plus people in the country, maybe three, three million, four million. And, um, 20% of that. So we're talking about over 600,000 people, which is about the population of the Gold Coast. Wow. So yeah, there's a lot of LGBTIQ people who live with disability and a lot of them, a lot of us also experience, uh, or are feel or feel that we are disabled by mental health issues. Yes. And I say feel disabled by because I think that often like it's they're preventable or at least that better supports would be available, uh, but they're not. And so we have to kind of deal with them ourselves. And that is the the disability. And that you know the social model of disability is that when you're you know when the world has not created pathways for people you know, face with, with like a, with differences in that way, it, it can make it, um, it is debilitating in itself. Mm, definitely. Do you, did you find this? And I'm not sure this is just my own experience. Mm. I've talked to other people about this, but for example, when you were at university, um, you could mm. apply for things like access and stuff like that. Um, if you have, mm. if you're living with a disability, um, yes, I, always thought it was not fair of me to do it because I was like oh well a mental illness like you know I'm still fine like I'm I'm kicking along I can be I can do it I can do it fine and it took me oh for sure we find a lot of ways to justify that we're used to suffering it's um you know we define a lot of our lives by it it's a like I did actually go well because when I was at uni I wasn't diagnosed with a disability at the time so I just I just had depression was mine um so and even then I think uh, when I went to the disability liaison unit, I felt really overcome because I was just like, but it feels wrong to call myself disabled. Yes. I have a very different understanding of all that stuff now. And I, but I also just recognize the daunt, like it just also talks a little about what the messages was people who were disabled, where it's just like, oh, if I, if I step through this door and acknowledge that I'm part of this, then my, like my life options are drastically reduced, mm. you know? Yes. Um, yeah. And I think, 
Yeah. And that's why, you know, being able to talk about these things and hear there are people who struggle with mental health issues who do actually achieve a lot of success and can be quite happy while also, you know, um, at times and, and live like fulfilling lives while also living with mental health issues yeah. or mental illness. And I think, um, I think it's, it's, it's a tricky kind of tightrope to walk, but that sense of not feeling like you're entitled to help. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. So uh, intense. I, mm, and I feel that like, because, you know, when it comes to being a bisexual person, I didn't feel like I was entitled to help that should be going to gay and lesbian people because um, there was this really strong sense that as a bisexual person, I was only like half gay or like mm. a diet gay. <laughs> and so I would only be experiencing what they experience at half strength. While in fact, what we found out now is that we actually experience homophobia and biphobia and that the effects are actually much greater. Wow. But we're... Um, and yeah, but I think, uh, and then of course, when I realized that's not like, uh, when I not realized, but when I kind of had the opportunity and role modeling and education and language to start unpacking my sense of gender and what my gender was and what it meant to me, I still, I still deal with a lot of that sense of not being trans enough, of not being, mm-hmm. um, of not, ha- not having suffered enough because yeah. we're talking about communities that are defined by suffering, you yeah. know? Uh, that are defined by persecution and discrimination and our experiences of surviving that or not surviving that. And I think that can really set these boundaries where it's that sense of, well, have I actually, is my suffering recognized enough to allow me to pass into this space without my legitimacy being questioned? Yes. That's so, yes, you've hit the nail on the head. It's it's like if I go into this, if I kind of pass into this community, am I going to be seen as someone who's capitalizing on this when I don't really need to be? And yep. are people outside that community going to be seeing me as, you know, uh, doing the same or like maybe they're going to think of me differently or, yes, you know, feel exactly. sorry for me. And in reality, I just want to be like, hey, sometimes I'm not well and during those periods I need some extra help. But apart from that, like I'm okay. And you can't yeah. it's just you can't do that. You're kind of in or you're out kind of thing. And um, it's hard when the world enforces that, right? Like or yeah. when society enforces that. Like, you know, I'll use again like the kind of bisexual thing. Like you do, like I have been told by gay and gay and lesbian people that I, you know, that, um, bisexual people have it way easier. And so that was the social narrative. And it's so strong that, you know, you kind of find the things that will feed into it and make it real based on like whatever's going on around you. Right. And it's really hard to identify what's affecting you if no one's acknowledging it exists. Like it's really hard to actually, even if you're feeling wounded, it is hard to actually take that seriously. If, everyone is actively denying that anything could be wounding you. Mm. And I think that's a, that's a big problem that we see, like, you know, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community, like I think deals with this a lot um, where there's people just like, but there's nothing wrong anymore. So why are you, why, why are your communities still like showing all these signs of trauma? Um, And also that mental health, like the conversation around that has changed so drastically. Like I remember when, and it's still got a long way to go to get me wrong, but even like, I think, 10 years ago or longer, like I remember when I was working in retail, in hospitality and my brother was like at that point, like, you know, recovering, mm. uh, and had been given a diagnosis and someone was like, Oh, I don't really believe bipolar exists. And I was like, uh. what, what a wild thing to say, but, it, <laughs> but there was just that sense of them just being like, I just think it's an excuse. And yeah, there was that yeah. really strong sense of it's an excuse. Mm. Um, and I think of like, you know, how, how even though there were terms for these things like after the first world war they called it the like they called shell like you know shell shock or the flanders blues this sense of complex post-traumatic stress with there was a word for it but there was no idea of what to do about it Mm. and i think um and even now though i feel like it used to be with treatment of mental health things like cognitive behavioral therapy and stuff in some ways kind of creates this sense of oh, now we kind of have a system. And if you follow these steps, you'll be better. Yeah. And I think that can also create a bit of a sense of, 
why aren't I getting better? I'm doing this wrong, <laughs> you know? Mm. And by the way, if you're autistic, cognitive behavioral therapy can exacerbate feelings of worthlessness. So it won't work. Wow. And then, um, I know that. And why, yeah. why is that the case? It's not really known. There isn't actually a lot of research on autistic adults or mental health in general because people tend to focus on biological indicators and cures. Yeah. Uh, so actually supporting autistic people in adulthood is, I think, a... Out of all the funding in Australia that goes into autistic research, I think about 7% of it goes into creating supports. The vast majority of it is around um, treatment, which is usually how to make us act less weird and how to try and... I was to say it's just because they want to make themselves feel better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's also because there's an assumption that the best, like, you know, and this is slowly, I hope it's slowly changing. I feel it's slowly changing, but there is a lot of assumption around neurodiversity and the neurodiversity being... Uh, autism, ADHD, Tourette's syndrome, uh, dyspraxia, dyslexia, things that are basically different ways of processing information. Mm. Um, there's still this idea that we would, that the best thing for a person with a disability to do is to try and be as close to the, and you can't see me because it's an audio thing. I'm doing air quotes as I say normal, <laughs> normal. Can you hear them? Um, I can. <laughs> and I think there's still this really strong sense that even with depression and often it's that, you know, if you're not looking at what's causing that, if you're just trying to like make yourself be normal, mm. then that I think can be hard too, because people don't want to engage with the difference and they want like, so this idea of like, oh, the aim is to be who you were before you got depressed. It's like, well, no, that person's gone. Oh yeah. They went that person's well gone. Go. Yes. You know, um, you have a different understanding of yourself and the world and that's actually okay. And I think there's that sense of, it's like a philosophical adjustment of, all right, so what if the goal is not to be a person without depression? What if it's to be a person who lives with depression and that's your baseline? Or for me, it's like, you know, I think I heard this on the podcast Big Feels Club. You know, I think I heard someone say, oh, my default is to assume everyone is angry or disappointed with me. And I was like, oh, yes, relatable content. (laughs) Um, But it's like, how do I, and I, that probably isn't going to go away for a while. Mm. And so, hoping it does or wishing it did or beating myself up because that's still where my brain goes to is not as useful as finding the way that I can move through the world and navigate it with that reality, you know? Yes. Yeah. No, I a hundred percent agree. That's oh, you're so, you're so articulate and amazing. <laughs> Everything you say, I'm like, I can, I can make a quote out of this. I um, practice talking all the time. <laughs> <laughs> something I really wanted to kind of ask you about, and I think it's, it's something that I still see happen a lot in mainstream media. Um, and just, you know, uh, a, a misunderstanding I think a lot of people have, and that is the difference between obviously having a uh being neurodiverse and having a uh, having something like autism or Mm. um adhd and having a mental illness and i think Mm. have you have you seen recently um any changes in that in terms of like people really trying to make sure that there is an obvious distinction between them and that people understand that yeah autism is not a mental illness yeah yeah because i feel like i see that a lot yeah no i I do too very harmful um yeah circumstances yeah i know it's something that um i was a you know i was made aware of when i'd be having a conversation with a friend she's like oh you know a mental illness like autism i'm just like oh honey no stop no uh it's not an illness an illness implies firstly that you can get better but also that it is inherently negative yeah and the thing around the neurodiversity like model is that I'm, you know, to constantly focus on this being some massive deficit is uh, like that I've got to live my life. So if I'm constantly being made aware that I'm not good enough, that something's wrong with me, mm. how am I supposed to live my life properly? And I think as well, that can be the sign of like people talk about symptoms of, of being an autistic person. It's like, no, I don't, I haven't got symptoms. <laughs> there are traits of autism. And I yes. think, and I think that's the big change that's also happening because illness can cause disability. Like, don't get me wrong, but uh, neurodiversity and like, And I think people also sometimes say that some mental health does fall into the bracket of neurodiversity because you do process information differently. Mm. Um, And I think, but that's still like, it's still a complicated discussion because I think, you know, often uh, if 
learning to live with like, you know, having high levels of anxiety or general anxiety disorder. Um, often I feel that it, sometimes I talk to people who I know have general anxiety disorder. Part of me is just thinking, I think you're a neurodiverse person who hasn't been diagnosed. And of course it's very anxiety inducing for you to live in a life. But that's also just because I think when you, I've only ever experienced thinking in, you know, in my way, which is an autistic way and ADHD way. And it's hard to imagine an experience you don't have. So I just, I just tend to imagine everyone's kind of like me until proven (laughs) otherwise, Um, which is not helpful. So I try not to do that as much as I I try not to pathologize people. But I do think that, um, it's also difficult because a lot of people, a lot of autistic people and people with ADHD also also have mental illness yeah. as a result of uh, moving through the world as a pers- as autistic person or a person with ADHD or both without the supports that are needed or even with the supports but with the constant negative talk that goes on about these these um these differences or these yeah and it's I think it's it, it is really tricky because you know, if people are calling my, well, firstly, like I, I use person first language with autism and I know not everyone does, but I'm an autistic person. I wouldn't say I'm a person with bisexuality. I'm a bisexual person. So, you know, but I know that that's not how everyone feels about it. And I think it's always really important to see how an individual person wants to talk about themselves and Mm. repeat that and not to, and I think, um, that's a whole, it's a whole other discussion. (laughs) But, um, but, uh, But I think as well with, um, with mental health, it's that sense of recognizing that if the person is thinking of autism and ADHD and dyspraxia in the term of mental illness, they are inherently assuming that the person wants to be better mm. and that the person could be a different version than the person that they are dealing with now. And that's really dangerous because uh, holding and, you know, I would, people have, like, I've been asked and I've seen people pose like you know particularly parents autistic kids who are still coming to terms with it mm. well, what would my child be without autism I'm like well it would be a different child yeah. you know yeah. it's a completely different person so your child wouldn't exist you know there's no version of me that exists without autism it just mm. doesn't happen and um and I think there's that whole case there of like when you say that that makes me like that's an illness it implies that I am inherently wrong and I'm defective and uh that in turn tends to make me pretty anxious so it's kind of a vicious cycle because if I feel that there's a part of me that is an illness or that is wrong I am constantly fearful of being judged for that Mm -hmm. and of being rejected as a behalf of that which you know does happen and so it kind of creates this like you know a cycle of of it's a deficit-based model, isn't it? It's kind of really focusing on all the things that is wrong with a person as opposed to what things that person, like what are the strengths of that person and what can you support? What supports do they need as opposed to what needs to change about them? Yes, yes. But I guess with, with people who live with uh, more complex mental health conditions like schizophrenia and bipolar and things like that, mm-hmm. I think it's also really important to know like there are uh, a lot of people who live with these conditions see benefits to those conditions um mm-hmm. i think obviously I, for a while i worked as a peer worker um in a in mental in a mental health unit i was speaking to this lady and she's like you know what i do have schizophrenia yes but sometimes uh the voices that i that i hear are really positive yeah they, they tell me really great things they're really entertaining and she's like yeah. i would get given this medication that you know turns me into a zombie and i i, I can't I, I can't interact with any part of myself and i think it's really interesting how but we're always just looking at a cure and it's not like and it's how Stephen Fry yeah. talks about bipolar right mm-hmm. where he talks about not wanting to lose the the periods of or, or you know what we call mania or mm. manic behavior which is like massively energized and massively enthusiastic and and enjoying life in a whole different way that like you know does allow you to kind of be euphoric and like you know I as an autistic person um I I feel things very deeply. I have a very, very strong sense of moral justice. I have a very good memory about some things. <laughs> I don't get to choose, but some things. When I, and also with ADHD, like when I focus, I focus hard. Yeah. You know, like if I'm into something, I I will pour myself into it. And um and as well, Fantastic. you know. Yeah, and I I'm 
I find subterfuge difficult. I'm not great at small talk, but it does mean that I tend to want to understand somebody properly. So I do want to, so I'm being vulnerable and authentic with people. I find much more natural than, um, than social, than kind of trying to create like the, the social, like, I don't know the pride and prejudice ish harsh regulation of being like, I will carefully think of everything I say and show nothing on my face. <laughs> um, I will say something that is not what I mean at all, but I do expect you to understand what I mean uh, because there's a whole other language going on. And things like, you know, I used to be so conscious of, I mean, I still am and I probably always will be, but I'm self-conscious because I can be very blunt. And so I, because I don't necessarily always understand uh, if what I'm saying has been understood mm. and so I could over explain or I can just kind of say the the subtext that everyone's been thinking that no one said because you're not supposed to say it but I was just like oh you mean this and everyone's like oh my gosh oh, really? what do you mean yeah what yeah. do you mean but then for some of my friends like oh I really appreciate that you just say it I'm like oh I'm glad I I'm Saves glad too I time, guess you know <laughs> I think so I think so but I think it's um it's also that sense of you know there there's and I think it's also there are pros and cons to these things. And I, I'm also someone who I am, I'm a, I've got low, I've got quite low support needs. I have support needs. Do not get me wrong. People often think that I don't use the functioning labels because I feel that mm. functioning is often about a human being. We don't, we don't say human function. We say, you know, human functioning, human being like functioning implies the sense that I have to be doing things to be a person who is worthy yeah. as opposed to just being like, it's a human being, you know, I can just be, it shouldn't be about how much work I can do. It should just uh, sound like a is. robot in some ways, like this kind of like. It is. It's dehumanizing. It's very technology. dehumanizing. Yeah. And it also usually means like if you're a high functioning person, people assume that you don't need any help, mm-hmm. uh, which is also not true, but uh, it's also functioning tends to be about what is observed about you as opposed to what you're feeling, right? Like people might observe this and like, well, that's weird and different and I don't like it and I think you should change and I think you would want to change. But the person's like, I was quite content until you decided to shame me for this. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> until you decided it's something that I had to fix. And I think, um, you know, with uh, I, I don't experience, uh, I, don't, I don't have schizophrenia, I can't speak to that experience, but I think there is that sense of like people actually being able to talk about you know, what, what this is about and like what it, the feeling and the experience of it is like. And, you know, that's why I think it's so important. We start to have more peer led research into mental health and into, and into neurodiversity because, uh, if you don't have people there with their experiences to kind of cut across the unconscious biases that will exist in the research itself, it's a, we just tend to have research that kind of just fits the, the messages of the of the researchers and like we can't help that we all we all do the confirmation bias thing it's mm. um it's a very human thing to do but it's that sense of if you like you know it's very the idea of othering and observation it's only a very small part of the picture yeah. of what it's actually like it's mental health it's in the brain yeah, you can't get in there you know <laughs> you like, can but you can't see it you can't like you know you can watch neurons yeah. firing as much as you want but you can't understand what that feels like yeah. you know we can talk about chemicals but we can talk about serotonin and dopamine but what does that mean what does that feel like mm. and i think um because that's what's important, right? Like it's about how we kind of move through these things and what, and like how they enable us or, or can like block us from things and how mm. they can uh, make it difficult to overcome like particular obstacles or how we can get stuck in patterns uh, because of, you know, of trauma. And I think the other thing is like a lot of neurodiversity, we don't live in a world that really produces untraumatized neurodiverse people so there are a lot of traits of of trauma in a lot of the neurodiverse uh, criteria just because the things people observe about autism are often what happens when an autistic person is not having out their needs met you yeah. know yeah if we're like having a meltdown because something's gone wrong around us if we're like having a if we're really struggling, if we're being awkward, it's because something's really going wrong. But that's all we're defined by. And I think that's because people, we don't, we're only just starting to really understand what it means to support uh, autistic people so that we are not just out, you know, we're not just struggling all mm. the time. And I think that's the same for, for a lot of other of conditions as well. But, um, and I think, you know, it's the same with the idea that it is possible to, to live with anxiety. 
uh, or to live with um, to live with depression, to live with bipolar, and actually to find ways where you know you can understand it. You know, it is so much easier to live alongside these things when we understand them and when we're not made to feel ashamed or that we have to overcome them or that the best case scenario is to eradicate them completely because then anything less than eradication feels like failure. It does. It 100% does. And I think going back to that idea of like what are the positives, like I have a lot of things I can get done and do very well because I am a naturally perfectionistic, anxious person. Like that's what makes me so good at my job. That's what makes me such a high achiever. And I don't want to get rid of those things. So I'd much rather just understand it very intimately and mm-hmm. just try and work on it the best I can when I need to. Um, so we can understand the parts of it that are yeah helpful, or the parts of it that are going to be detrimental, you know? Like I think that's – yeah, and I think that's – um, but I do think it, it is still like a boggling concept for a lot of people that we – we don't want to eradicate it, mm. you know. Like I think I remember watching, I remember reading the results from an autistic person had done like a crowdsource research, um, and like eleven thousand people, autistic uh, uh, or people who suspected they're autistic, and people who were not autistic, um, and it was about cures. One of the questions was around cures, and the vast majority of autistic people did not want a cure. The vast majority of non-autistic people did want a cure. Mm. And it was that assumption of they assumed that we would be happier if we were like them, while we would be happier if they accepted that we didn't, that we weren't like them, and that was okay, you know? Yeah, yeah. It would just be so amazing, like for me. Obviously, this is blue sky thinking, and who knows when we'll get there. But like, imagine if every person in society had what they needed to excel, had the tools, had the support network, were given everything that they needed to excel like can you imagine the world we would live in i think it's just i do i imagine all the time it's what i it's a it's what kind of fuels the work i do if i um i think there's a level of i think there has to be a level of like aggressive optimism often in doing kind of advocacy of any kind but um yeah no i think that's it and a part of for me what's been what's been so helpful oh sorry about that has been understanding if, if, like it's recognizing what I need to thrive and that also that I can. Mm. And I think, I think of, you know, what if everybody felt confident that having a mental illness or, or being a person living with disability was, was not going to stop them from thriving? What if we could all actually reach a point where we didn't feel that fear? Because I think, you know, it's like I remember reading – there was that really famous teacher who did a lot, like, uh, she was a white woman, but she did a lot of teaching around race. Yeah. And she did that, she did the experiment with the kids with blue eyes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And she was saying, you know, in a room full of white people, who here would want to be a, a black person? And she goes, none of you raised your hands. That means that you know something is wrong. Yeah. And I feel that a lot of the time with mental health and with, and with disability as well, there's that kind of people are afraid of it because they know that we don't support it yeah. we know that it's stigmatized we know that and it was the same with lgbtqa plus identities and it still is like there's still like a huge amount of entrenched homophobia and heteronormativity and 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 trans transphobia and, and discrimination against intersex people um in this in this world and and biphobia as well and i think um that if people felt that they could be that and but we also see what happens when people start to feel that they can be themselves yeah. and suddenly the numbers shoot up and everyone's like, why are there suddenly so many more trans kids? It's like, well, you know, probably for the same reasons that when they stopped hitting kids for writing with their left hand, the number of kids who are left-handed shot up, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's um, when people think that they, that like there are, uh, if we take away this idea that these things would, will be obstacles for our, ha- for our ability to live meaningful lives, it means we want to deny them. And I mean, we don't want to address that they exist because it means it could be us and that's really hard. Mm. And we want to believe in a just world. And so in a just world, um, if these things happen, there has to be reason for it or something like that. I don't know. But I agree. I think if we could, if people understood that having a mental illness, being a neurodiverse person, being an autistic person, being a person with disability, like that is not going to mean that you will be ostracized it's not going to mean you won't be supported it does not mean that you can't live a good life in whatever way that means to you 
I think we'd be a lot more comfortable with talking about it openly because yeah. we wouldn't, there wouldn't be that unspoken thing of, I hope this never happens to me. Yes. And I feel that that undercurrent is so present and it makes people, it's why, you know, and it's so, it's why people kind of create those big blocks for their own empathy. Cause it's like, I can't, I don't want to have to imagine this. Yeah. Because it's, it is beyond my comprehension and it seems so bad. It's like, it only seems bad because of this weird narrative, because you know that we've got centuries and centuries and thousands of years to overcome in the beliefs of this, but we can do so much better now and it's going to be okay. You don't have to be afraid. And I think that we're getting there and like the discussions on mental health are getting there and the more people who open up and can talk about their experiences, you know, I think particularly, you know, I think for men being able to talk about mental health is this whole new concept still. And I, and it's like that for a lot of people, but I do, I think, you know, when occasionally you have football players and this country has a weird worship relationship with sport. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, so weird. Yeah. <laughs> but it does mean that when someone actually comes forward and is like, I have this, or I've been dealing with this, it makes a difference. And I also remember these two kind of little moments that came from during the bushfires And in one case you had, you know, an old couple and the old man was crying, but even as he was crying, he was sitting, he goes, yeah, she's right. She's right. Like he was just actively trying to stop it. And then there was another time where a guy had just lost everything for the second time and he was crying and he went to me, he goes like, actually, no, no, it's okay. People should know it's okay to cry. It's okay for men to cry. And I was just watching that and I was like, that's the change we're seeing. That's yeah. the change we're seeing right now because even if we can't do it for ourselves yet, we are learning that we have to do it for each other. Mm. Mm. I love that. So true. So true. Um, <laughs> we're nearly out of time. Uh, so I, I guess I'm just trying to think what I should ask you. No. Okay. Um, if I would like to kind of really know your thoughts, on, I guess if there's someone out there listening who feels like potentially they um, they, they, they could be autistic and they, they want to mm-hmm. have a discussion and they want to talk about it, they want to understand it more, um, what would you recommend would be a, a great path for them to go down to kind of get that consultation going? Yeah, it, it's, it's a tricky one because like a... I'll just be really honest. Uh, formal diagnosis is really expensive mm. as an adult. Um, but I do think that if you, and, but also in the autistic community, there is a really strong belief that self diagnosis is acceptable just because there's a recognition of the financial barriers. Yeah. And so I would suggest honestly, um, like Facebook groups, I think there's one that's called sounds autistic and that's okay. Um, and people often have self-assessment tools. So there are self-assessment tools as well online that you can find. Mm-hmm. Also, um, if you're in Australia, Autism Spectrum Australia has, and if you're in Victoria, Amaze, which is uh, the Autism Victoria community, like a uh, organization, mm-hmm. they both have helplines that you people can talk through. So don't feel that you are taking away from somebody if you're using those resources to try and understand yourself. That is literally what they're for. Mm-hmm. You're doing exactly what you're supposed to do if you reach out with those but also if you think maybe you might be autistic but that's scary just remember that it doesn't you won't be a different person if you find out you are you'll be the same person you'll just be able to help you'll be able to understand how you work in the world and that makes it a lot easier to move through it that's such amazing advice I love it. Thank you, Ruby. Um, Thanks for having me. (laughs) Yeah, thank you so much for being on the show. I I have loved speaking to you. I feel like this has been one of the most informative uh, episodes for not only people out there but myself. Um, So thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. Oh, look, I I really appreciated getting a chance to chat about it. It's... um... And, uh, yeah, I, I, I practice talking a lot and I memorize a lot of statistics. So it's, it's a time like this where it comes in handy. <laughs> Brilliant. All right. Thank you so much. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you loved that episode with Ruby. As I said, I think um, 
yeah, just listening to their experiences was so informative. I feel like sometimes I think I have a really good grasp on on certain issues and topics and then I'm completely blown away by other people's knowledge and lived experience. So I really appreciate Ruby coming on the show and being so candid with us. Um, I really recommend you check out Triple Bypass if that's something you feel like listening to, especially if you're someone who is bisexual and would like to hear about Uh, and we'd like to hear from other bisexual people and their experiences, I think it would be super uh, helpful and informative. Uh, Guys, as I mentioned, this is the last episode of season two. And I think I just, before I do my little social media spiel, would really, really like to thank everybody who has been on the show so far um, and specifically this year. Obviously, it's been a very tough year with COVID-19, completely obliterating (laughs) the year essentially and I know it's been really tough for people especially when they're living in isolation so I hope that this show has brought some kind of I don't know like I I hope this show has helped you in some way some shape or form I it's hard I, I wouldn't really call the show relaxing and enjoyable to listen to but it's informative and it's important um, and I, I think it also has the propensity to be life or life changing in, in some cases. I know that's a very big statement to make, but I think when you when you hear someone else's story and you're like, "Oh my God, that's me," it's it's quite affirming. And I hope that's happened for at least one person out there this year. Uh, but yeah, thank you for all the support, all the kind messages that I still receive. Uh, I'm looking to get this show even bigger and better next year. So watch out. Uh, I'm hoping to also have some content over the the summer holiday break. So it's not going to be complete radio science, science, (laughs) silence for me. Um, And I am also in the process of getting some merchandise ready. I've been struggling to get that going because I've been so busy. Uh, It's really hard when you're doing this and working full time. So keep on, um, keep an eye out for that as well. I will I will be announcing that hopefully in the next few months. Um, so if you want to get in contact with me, there's a few ways, and that is through Facebook. You just type in if you don't mind. Instagram is if you don't mind podcast. Uh, I've got a Patreon. So if you type in if you don't mind to Patreon, you can become a patron for as little as $2 a month. Uh, and finally, if you want to be on the show or you have any suggestions, comments, queries, anything like that, Reach out to me at if you don't mind podcast at gmail.com. I'm always really excited to, to hear from you. Or just shoot me a message in any other place Instagram, Facebook. People message me on LinkedIn sometimes, which is kind of cool. Um, and I kind of love it. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm around. You can find me. I'm very easily findable on the internet. <laughs> uh, guys, it's nearly Christmas time, it's nearly the end of the year. It's going to be stressful. There's going to be lots of stuff happening. People coming out of lockdown, the world kind of going back to a, I guess, some level of normalcy. But I just want you to know like, that this show is always here if you need it. So as usual, as I say at the end of every single episode, and we'll continue to do so until the show ends, <laughs> uh, be kind to yourself. Be kind to um, those around you. And when you can, take the time to listen to someone else's story. Enjoy the rest of your year, guys. I'll see you soon. Thank you.